as we transition from the creation narrative, Genesis 1 and 2, and the fall of man, we looked at that through Genesis chapter 3, into our examination of the fallout. God created and man has messed it up. And the rest of the Bible is really a story of God fixing that, of God launching this mission impossible, a plan to redeem fallen man. I do think before we get there, that at a juncture like this, a transitional point, it's important to just take a second and reiterate our purpose in being in Genesis to begin with. As we noted in our very first study, Moses established Genesis as the first book of the Torah, the Pentateuch, for a very specific reason. The children of Israel, a nation that had been called by God, supernaturally delivered from Egypt by God through Moses, sustained then in the wilderness by God, given the law by God, led to a land of promise by God, set up there to to, to live as a light, a beacon into the world. It would be easy for a group of people, having received so much of that unmerited favor, for them to begin to think, or adopt a sense of maybe self-entitlement, that there had to be something about them, something special, that necessitated so much of God's goodness, so much of his incredible favor. And yet the story of Genesis makes it clear that the children of Israel were God's chosen people for two reasons. One, God chose them. Two, they placed their faith and a coming savior. You see, what Romans and Galatians soundly communicate doctrinally, it is Genesis that illustrates practically, by design, within every verse of the book of Genesis, you will find the Genesis of grace. The book oozes grace. Instead of law or some standard to measure our worthiness, Genesis presents example after example after example of men and women's stories. Men and women who just through simple faith in God's promises come to experience the transforming power of God's amazing grace. Not by some way that they earned it, but by the fact that God just gave it. Now, up until this point, we've seen, and the first three chapters of Genesis, amazing examples of God's grace. From God's creation of the world to his formation of a garden that man could enjoy, concluding that it was all good, that man would love it, to his making the woman a companion, creating marriage for them to enjoy this companionship, all by his grace. I mean, it's, it's evident from the first three chapters, that God immensely blessed man out of just the abundance of his grace and his goodness. In the beginning, God, that's all we're told. And then everything he does from that point forward explains to us, illustrates, reveals who this God is. And you can't help but note how good he is, how gracious he is, how loving he is. And what had man, what had Adam done to deserve any of it? Like what had Adam really done to deserve the incredible sunrise or the ability to look into the galaxies and to the stars and be amazed at the lights? I mean, what had Adam done to to be able to enjoy uh, nature and the trees and the animals? What had he done to deserve a wife? Absolutely nothing. God had just given it to him. And if all that weren't enough, Even when man deserved the consequences of death, when he tragically rejected God's love by eating this forbidden fruit, what does God do? And another act of grace undeserved, we see God specifically coming down into a garden and the cool of the day, the cool of the evening, in order to seek out that which was lost. That God came to seek a sinner. And why? To judge him? To condemn him? To destroy him? No. Why did God come? Why did he seek the sinner? Uh, Simple. God had a plan to redeem him. 
He had a plan to redeem man from this fallen condition and this fallen world by providing a savior. As we noted last Sunday, it is fascinating that in another act of grace, God drove man from the garden. And he did this so that man would have no access to this tree of life. In doing so, God graciously decided that he would not allow sinful man and this sinful state and this fallen condition to live forever. Implementing human death was the first step. An interesting step, but the first in God's plan to save because it separated man's existence now into this life and the eternal. Today, friend, if you reject this fallen world and are reconciled with God through faith in his promised Savior, whom we know to be Jesus, upon death, you will enter an eternity mired not by the effects of sin, forever dwelling in the presence of your loving and gracious creator. Doesn't that sound wonderful? However, if you instead choose this world and thereby make a choice to continue in your rebellion against God, if you then reject his savior, Jesus, well, upon death, you will enter from this life into an eternal existence forever separated from your creator, and one in which the ultimate effects of sin are made manifest. In his classic book, The Great Divorce, famed author C.S. Lewis, he wrote this, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell, no soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it will be opened. Now note, this divine plan hatched in the garden would have been meaningless, vain, powerless, really, apart from the actions of both Adam and Eve. You know, a savior is only useful to someone who will admit their need for saving, for salvation. Grace can only transform a person who actually wants God's favor. Redemption by God and reconciliation with God is only of value to the person that wants to be redeemed, that wants to be reconciled with their savior, with their God. And it's my conviction that God's plan and the lives of Adam and Eve were furthered specifically on account of their faith. We see incredible faith demonstrated in the garden. Adam and Eve showed a faith when they willingly responded to the voice of the seeking God, the seeking God in the garden. Remember, they heard God, that God was in the garden, the presence of God, and they hid themselves. And yet it was then by that voice of God, that tender, gracious voice of God saying, where are you? That what did Adam do? He made a decision that I am going to step out from my hiding place into the presence of God, knowing that God will see me as I now am, a sinner and rebellion. That I can't hide it. You see, that step of faith, that responding to God's voice, Adam was willing to acknowledge his sin. It was an act of uh, the first step of repentance. It was an appeal to, his, to God's goodness. You know, it, we noted last Sunday that Adam's faith was further evidenced when upon hearing that God would provide a savior, Genesis 3, verse 15, that the savior would come through the seed of the woman, that the woman would bear a son, a miraculous son, a divine son, a virgin will conceive. And that would be a sign to the world that God's plan was enacted, that that man would save man from his sin, that that would be the redeemer, that that man would be the savior. God lays out this plan. And what does Adam do immediately following this? We're told in Genesis 3 that he renames his wife. Up until that point, she's just known as the woman. And yet, as an act of faith to the promise of God that a Savior would come, Adam renames the woman 
Eve. Why? Because she was the mother of all living. Not in the sense that she would just be the mother of all living, but that through her, life would come. Eternal life, a savior, salvation, a glorious promise. And yet, while we see Adam and Eve acting in faith, responding to God's word, God's grace reigning supreme, it is also a truth that not everyone is as willing as Adam and Eve to respond to the voice of God and act in such a way. The brutal reality is that more people than not choose a world without God. Willingly. You see, as we transition into chapter 4, Moses, Moses is going to illustrate something very important. Through the story of Cain, that the only thing that keeps a man from the grace of God is his pride and self made manifest in religious moralism. In a sense, the only thing that can keep you from God's grace is you. Verse 1, Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time, his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Here they are, Adam and Eve, cast into a new world, vastly different from the garden they had previously enjoyed. And yet they are armed with a promise that God has a plan, that God would provide a savior. Now, it doesn't take long for Adam to know his wife. And if you're confused at all, knowing in the biblical sense, well, is knowing in the biblical sense. And yet here we find Adam and Eve knock boots, and she conceives. And what happens? She bears a son, a firstborn son, And this boy is given the name Cain. Now, don't miss the significance of this name. Cain literally means acquired. And it would appear that judging by Eve's immediate reaction to his birth, when she declares, I have acquired a man from the Lord, not a man from Adam, a man from the Lord, that Eve and probably Adam believed that when they were given this firstborn son, that God was making good on that promise that through her would come a savior and they're given a boy and they're thinking, this is the savior. I've acquired a man from the Lord. All right, this little detour out into the world, this boy's gonna fix it. We're gonna be back in that garden soon. And yet, it doesn't take long, right, for Eve to conceive again. She bears a second son whose name is also telling. It seems as though by the time she has Abel, that any thought that Cain was a savior had gone out the window. I mean, spend spend time with a two-year-old. And it becomes very clear, that child needs a savior, is not a savior. It gets worse at three. Whoever said terrible twos were were the worst, their child had to have died before three. Like, because, (laughs) my goodness, you get to three and it's like, I long for the days when he was two, right? And yet it it didn't take very long, right? For Adam and Eve to be like, that man we acquire from the Lord. She's like, I didn't acquire that from the Lord. I acquired that from Adam. And so the second child kind of illustrates what's going on in Eve's life. She names him Abel, which you might think that's kind of a cute name. No, it's not. It's not a cute name at all. Don't name your child Abel. For the word Abel means emptiness, vanity. She has, I've acquired a man. Two years later, I have another child. I'm gonna reflect my heart, my attitude on all this. Empty, vain, worthless, bad name for a child. Absolutely, yikes. It would appear now that the reason she does this, it's it's beginning to sink in. That God's plan to provide a savior 
was it going to happen like on their timetable? That while they might be thinking, hey, we'll have a son, we'll get back to the garden. Now it's becoming clear that this is going to take some time. That God's plan is not going to roll out quite on their timetable. It's not going to happen as initially as they might have thought. It's interesting to consider, though, how incredibly similar these two boys would have been. Not only were they both born sinners, never experiencing paradise like their parents, but they would have naturally had strong genetic traits. Why? Well, they had two parents who shared identical DNA. Beyond this, they would have also grown up in the same environment. Like they would have had, obviously, the same family, Adam and Eve. They would have had the same friends. Cain would have had Abel, and Abel would have had Cain. <laughs> Kindergarten was a little awkward. It was just two of them. But their culture, their environment, everything that these two children had, from their genetic traits and heritage to their environment, their culture, their family, their relationships, it was all the same. It was all identical. Same influences, teachers. And yet, while incredibly alike, each boy, we're told right here, had totally different interests and abilities and talents. We're told Abel was a keeper of sheep while Cain was a tiller of the ground. Abel took care of the flocks, and Cain worked with his hands, grew food. Both had gifts and abilities, different jobs that they worked in order to provide important resources for their family. Now, though Cain and Abel grow up with parents who possessed a strong faith in God, it will become clear such spiritual qualities are not hereditary. While parents indeed have a very unique place of influence in their children's lives. And please know that. Your kids will learn about God by being an imitator. They will see how you follow God, how you live. That's how they'll learn. It's not what you say about God that will teach them about God although you should teach them about God. It's how you live, how you follow God, how you follow Jesus. That communicates more. Kids learn by observation. They watch. Parents have an influence. It's undeniable. A strong influence, an important influence. And yet, your faith is not something that you can bequeath. It's not something that you can pass down. Your faith really is not something you can hand over. Write it in the will. Like everyone, every human being will have to make a decision for themselves at some point who they will serve. And it's not always a reflection on the parent. Please know that. We're gonna see a tragedy here. But we see one son who loves God, one son who rebels against God, same parents. Two different results. It means it's not all about the parent. Take heart. Take heart. Two boys. Many ways different, many ways the same, will have to make a decision for themselves as it pertains to God. Their approaches, we'll see, are radically different. We're free moral agents. Verse 3. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But God did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. First, we're told here, in the process of time, it came to pass. While we can reason it didn't take long for Adam and Eve to have Cain and Abel following their eviction from the garden. We really, though, have no idea how much time transpires between their births and this particular event. In the sense, we have no idea how old Abel is or how old Cain is. 
All we know from the text is that it was a defined period of time that this event occurs, the phrase, in the process of time. It literally means at the end of time or at the end of days. Some scholars think this could be an, uh, a reference to the end of the week. Some people speculate at the end of childhood, maybe when they became a man, had to make a decision for themselves. We really don't know. But we can say with certainty that there was, in some way, a specific time that had been communicated that what was about to take place should occur. Additionally, the fact that we're told Cain and Abel brought an offering, we can logically reason that aside from there being a a prescribed time, there also seems to be a determined location and a fixed methodology for the activity they were about to engage in. This is all really interesting. Like consider, there was a determined time, there was a determined location, and there was a determined activity. So the question arises, who gave these specific directives? Who set the time? Who set the place? Who set the activity? I think it's wrong, as many do, to assume that it was Adam. The text doesn't tell us that, does it? It doesn't say at all that Adam was the one that set the time, the location, and the method. Beyond that, we have no evidence that there was some type of codified religion or written law by this point that would have dictated such activities. Rather, it would appear because God ends up respecting and rejecting these two offerings, that this must have been something that he had communicated to Adam, that it was God who set the time, who set the place, and set the activity, that everything that was to happen on that day was designed by God to be an act of worship before God because God shows up, he accepts one, he rejects the other. God's there. He makes good on the date. Now, how do we know that this was the case? If you go back, though Adam and Eve in the garden had initially made for themselves coverings of fig leaves, seeking to hide the fact that they were now naked as an act of their rebellion, that they were sinners, we noted that the fig leaves failed to actually conceal what had happened, which is why when they hear God in the garden, they go and hide themselves. The fig leaves clearly weren't working at hiding. So they find the trees. And yet, following Adam's renaming of Eve, this act to reflect his faith in God's promise of a savior, we're told in Genesis 3.21 that after Adam responds in faith, what happens? Verse 21 of chapter 3, that God, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now notice, that's significant. In order to provide effectual clothing for sinful man, for the very first time, blood is shed. Like where did God get the tunics of skin? Did he roll down to Old Navy and get some fleece? Did he go to Joanne's, get some fabric and just, you know, stitch some things together? No. Like, where did he get the tunics of skin? God killed an animal. Like, for the first time, blood is shed. For the first time, death enters the human condition, the created order. God initiates these things. It's radical. Imagine Adam and Eve watching this. Here they were sewing together fig leaves. God takes an animal and kills an animal and makes for them covering. It had to have been horrifying. They'd never seen bloodshed. They'd never seen the lights go out of an animal's eyes. It had to have been a shocking experience, and yet God's the one that does it. It seems only logical that in making these tunics, God was doing more than just covering their naked behinds, right? That God was doing more than just giving them clothes so they didn't have to walk around nude. That what God was doing by making them tunics of skin, is that he was establishing an important precedent. And what was the precedent? That man's access to God, 
could only come if man had a covering. But man's covering could only come, could only be provided by a work of God. That God's favor could only be given by God and was not something that man could ever earn. Man couldn't make for himself a covering. God had to provide one. C.H. McIntosh writes, The robe which God provided was an effectual covering because he provided it. Just as the apron was an ineffectual covering because man had provided it. And to illustrate this point, admittedly, God does something dramatic. He determines that the only way sinful man can approach the righteous God would be through faith in the atoning death of an innocent sacrifice made for his sins. Because we're told the wages of sin is death, the atonement for sin would always necessitate the shedding of innocent blood. This is a precedent that goes all the way to the cross. To this point in the Mosaic law, God would explain his reasoning, why blood was demanded. He says in Leviticus 17 verse 11, for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your sins, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Note, not only would the act of sacrificial atonement illustrate the brutal and barbaric consequences of man's sin, that because of man's sin, death was demanded, but the act of presenting a sacrifice for your sin, it would demand humility on the part of the sinner. God gives grace to the humble, right? But he resists the proud. As such, access to God could never be earned, could never be achieved by sinful man. Instead, access to God was something that, that God would give and this gift would manifest from the death of a sacrifice. This all happens in the garden. Look at what happens. Let's get back to our text. So it's God, right? Sets the time, the location, the activity. You meet me here, we're going to roll. So we're told that Abel, Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock. And we're told that as a result, the Lord respected Abel and his offering. This word respected in the Hebrew, it means acknowledge. And notice Abel and his offering are completely intertwined. You see that from the text? And the Lord respected Abel and his offering. His offering revealed his attitude and his attitude determined his offering. Abel and the offering are tied together. Now imagine how this particular process would have happened. Abel knows the time's coming. It's getting close where he's going to go and make an offering to God. And so since Abel is a keeper of the flocks, he's a shepherd, no doubt he picks out a ewe lamb, a spotless lamb without blemish, and he separates it from the rest of the herd. He takes care of this lamb. He wants to ensure that it stays, it remains cherished, cared for. This little lamb, probably in the course of time, becomes somewhat of a pet. He grows a, a connection. There's an attachment. He may have, and I'm just speculating, named the little lamb, Chepetto, or something like that. And so here, is, is Abel with little Chepetto. And little Chepetto, it sleeps with Abel. When it gets cold at night, it nestles up to Abel. I mean, they, they love each other. There's a connection. Maybe he even made a little leash so he and little Chepetto could go on walks. Who knows? He has a big handbag. He goes to the mall. He brings Chepetto with him. It's like a Chihuahua dog, right? But, but the point, this connection, right? It's a relational connection that takes place between Abel and this lamb. And then the day comes and get yourself in the scene. I, we don't know if they made altars or not, how the, the method here took place, other than the fact that an offering would be made, a sacrifice would be given. 
And so imagine you're able, and you've got your pet, your little bundle of furry joy, and you're going to sacrifice that pet to God. And here you are. You build up the altar. You get the wood stacked. The only thing missing now is the offering. And so you pick up little Chepetto, and you're walking up to this altar, and that little lamb is looking up at you, not a clue what's about to happen, not a clue what's about to take place. You've got a dagger in your back pocket. That lamb's looking at you with eyes that I love you and I care about you. You're my protector, my defender. You're my pal. And then you take that knife. Imagine if it were me, I love my dog, right? I got tears pouring down my face. Probably at this juncture, snot's getting all mixed in with it. Like I'm losing it. I am losing it because I know what's about to happen. The lamb has no clue. The lamb trusts me, loves me. I love it. And then with one sweeping glance, I take that knife and I slit its throat. And the eyes in that lamb go from love to horror. Why did you do that to me? What did I do wrong? I won't pee in the house anymore. I'm sorry. Like, it's just, in that moment, there is just, as the blood, begin, blood begins to pour out, the lights begin to go out of the, the eyes. Abel's crying. This is a, a terrible thing, a brutal thing. He took the life. He's covered in blood, his arms, his shirt. And he takes that little sacrifice and he lays it on the altar. And he stands back and he's like, there's gotta be a different way for this. That my sin would require that. Now, now why did God accept that offering? Well, God accepted Abel and his offering because it demonstrated faith. Abel stood there with no rights. He was a sinner. He had just killed an innocent. He was undeserving of anything, of God's favor, of God's forgiveness, of God's atonement. He was lost. He couldn't stand there in pride and moralism. In no way could Abel stand there and say, I'm a good man after doing that. And yet it was faith and the offering. You see, Abel was willing to approach God the way that God demanded he be approached. That Abel was willing to offer a blood sacrifice to make atonement for his sin. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, this great hall of faith, men in the Old Testament, men and women, lived lives of faith, but we're told, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which Abel obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gift, that through it, he being dead still speaks. Righteous, that he was righteous. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 23, verse 35, actually calls Abel, he refers to him as righteous Abel. While Abel was a sinner, according to the Levitical law, it had always been the sacrifice and never the worshiper that was to be examined. God accepted Abel because he accepted his sacrifice. But why did he accept his sacrifice? because it was made by faith. And what? A coming atoner, a greater sacrifice. Like Abel was found righteous before God, not because he was right, but because his offering was right. <laughs> Abel, he demonstrates faith here. Faith in what? Faith in what Jesus would do on the cross. Today, we also act in faith. But we're saved by placing our faith in what? In what Jesus did on the cross. Abel is looking to a sacrifice. Yet, 
unseen and not given. All he can trust is God's word. That a promised savior would be given. We have the great advantage because we can look back. We know who the savior is. We know what he did. We can look back in faith. Now, how was it that that God accepted the sacrifice? We know he did. And we know that this was kind of a public thing because Abel knew he had been accepted in his offering and Abel knew his had been rejected in his offering, which is why he gets upset. Like what could have happened? We're not told in the text. I think in regards to all of the the Hebrew uh, context and, and how everything plays out in regards to God accepting offerings, I believe that God sent fire from heaven. It's my own personal thought that consumed the offering. Much as Elijah with the cook-off against the prophets of Baal, much as Solomon dedicating the temple, much as we as living sacrifices, that God showed his favor, how? By pouring upon us fire from heaven, the Holy Spirit. Now, in contrast to Abel, we're told Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground, but God did not respect Cain and his offering. And as with Abel, notice Cain and his offering are equally intertwined. His offering revealed his attitude and his attitude determined his offering. And yet God wouldn't even acknowledge either. I mean, consider how that would have played out in Cain's life. He knows there's a determined time. He's going to go make an offering. What is he good at? Working the soil, working the earth, growing things. So what does he go about doing? He sets out a plot of land, he tills it up, he gets some manure, some fertilizer, he works it in, he plants choice seed. This is gonna be God's offering, right? And he works together like one of those things you send your wife on Valentine's Day, like this cornucopia of deliciousness. He goes and he picks out all of these different fruits, all of these different vegetables, all of these herbs and these spices. God's going to consume this offering and the aroma is going to be incredible. In essence, when Cain comes, what is he presenting? The fruit of his labor, literally. His work, his effort, his energy, his labor, his toil, the sweat of his brow, his sacrifices. It was sincere, right? And yet God rejects it. He doesn't even acknowledge it. Not only Cain, but his offering, and that's not cool for Cain, right? You see, the fundamental flaw in Cain's approach is that he was seeking to come before God in a manner God had not prescribed. Instead of faith in a blood sacrifice, Cain presents the fruit of his own labor. Cain believed his best would be good enough. And yet, the abomination and his approach, why God doesn't acknowledge it, is that his approach makes a mockery of God's grace. Now you might scratch your head and say, a mockery of God's grace, it does. Understand, salvation, salvation is not a divine transaction whereby God receives something first from you so that then he can give something back in return. You don't come to God to pay in so that God will pay out. That is not salvation in any context in the Bible. This approach, it's an abomination because it seeks to make God into someone he's not. I'll explain. In the story of Cain, what happened? Cain wanted to be the giver, right? And by default, wanted God to be the receiver. Cain wanted to earn a favor that God was only willing to give. To this point, C.H. McIntosh writes, man would fain make God a receiver instead of a giver. But this cannot be, for it is more blessed to give than to receive. And assuredly, God must have the more blessed place. The great giver of all things cannot possibly need anything. This is what makes... God's grace, so amazing. And by default, what makes our attempts at approaching God through religious moralism, our sacrifice, our labor, our fruit, our energy, our effort, all us bartering, why it's so insulting to God. 
And here's why. God doesn't want anything from you. In actuality, there's nothing that you can give other than your worship. God, God is in the business of not receiving, but bestowing. It's more blessed to give than receive. And when we come in our own religion, in our own right, in our own works, in our own attempts, this is what I'm offering you, God. We're making God less than a giver. We're trying to make him a receiver, and he will not be such. God delights in giving, which is why it's an insult to attempt to barter with him. Hey, God, I'll do these things for you, and then you take care of these things, right? Now, note, it's not just that God rejects Cain's approach. As a matter of fact, God himself describes Cain's method as wicked. And these types of prideful religious works, the attempt to barter with God as being evil. In 1 John 3, verse 12, we're told that Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil. And his brothers, righteous. Well, as a result of these things, we're told that Cain was very angry and his countenance fell, literally, in the Hebrew, Cain was smoldering. He was boiling over. And who was he angry with? He wasn't angry with Abel. He was angry at God. He was angry that God rejected him and rejected his offering. On a side note, anytime you find yourself angry with God, A, you're acknowledging God, and by default, you're saying, you know better. Like anytime you're angry with God, no, you're wrong right off the bat. Whatever it is that you're angry about God, it just means you're in the wrong. Just good trigger. Now, why we can reason, why we can reason why Cain might have been angry with God. It makes sense, right? His pride had been offended. His best had been rejected. I do want to ask kind of a question. I want to consider something. Why would Cain seek to earn something that God was wanting to give to him in the first place? I think Cain's action here was very intentional. That he knew God wanted to give favor, but he came wanting to earn it. And I think the answer kind of comes back to Cain's bio. Look back at verse 2. We're told Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, we're not going to get too far ahead of ourselves, but then look at verse 12. As God's Punish, doling out punishment on Cain, God tells him, quote, the ground shall no longer yield its strength, literally its power to you. So he's a tiller of the ground. As a consequence, the ground won't yield its strength. The implications seem to be that as a tiller of the ground, God allowed the earth to yield an increase specifically unique to Cain, that Cain was actually a really good farmer, which is fascinating, right? Because in the previous chapter, God punished Adam by, by what? God cursed, in chapter 3, verse 17, cursed the ground for Adam's sake. So Adam, man, it was difficult to grow anything because God had cursed it because of his sin. But Cain comes on, man, he's growing things. He's got the green thumb. Could it be? that Cain fell into the age-old trap of mistaking his physical blessings with God's favor? That while the ground may have been cursed for his father because of sin, the fact that the ground yielded its power to Cain, he saw as evidence God was already cool with him, that he was already right with God? Like, why would Cain seek to earn something God was wanting to give? Could it be that Cain thought he already had God's favor? And thus the act of giving to God was not to, to get his favor, but to maintain God's favor? Oh, you cursed the ground for my dad, but man, the ground yields for me. It must mean I'm cool, that I'm good, that I'm right. I don't need to make an offering. I'm just going to give you back what you're giving me. You know, we live in a society that is undoubtedly blessed financially. 
in a way never seen before in the history of the world. And yet, it is a mistake to equate any of our affluence with God's favor. For the Christian, the two have never gone hand in hand. You can be wealthy and be totally evil. And you can be a saint and be super poor. The two don't go hand in hand, they don't equate. You see, when you make this mistake of equating God's blessing with his favor, it becomes evident then in the motivations behind your sacrifices. Like not only are you misguided and your belief that you can be good with God without Jesus, but every good deed you do ends up having behind it a measure of self-motivation, selfish motivations. People go to church. Why? I don't have to go to church. I go for the social bump. Now, you don't go to this church for that, but one of those other ones. Like some people, right? Some people volunteer. They volunteer, why? Well, I mean, it'll look good on my resume. Now, I could say I volunteer. Some people give, right? Financially, why? Under the pretense that God will bless them with more money. Give them some clout. See, what happens is your service doesn't flow as a natural manifestation of God's grace. Your service ends up now being designed to make sure you and the big man upstairs, yielding the increase, remain on good terms. What have you done? You've now entered, like Cain, into a bartering relationship with God that he calls wicked. Sadly, you know what happens to the person if physical blessings they equate as the evidence of God's favor. When the blessings disappear because the market crashes, a business fails, housing slumps, you're just an idiot with your money. When that happens, because you've placed God's favor in these blessings, when, when, when all that goes away, you stand there angry at who? Like Cain, you're angry at God. In conclusion, Lots to chew on. But what's significant about all of this is that in the span of about a chapter, Moses has illustrated the failure of all religion. While Adam and Eve failed at using fig leaves in their attempt to conceal their fallenness, Cain's approach of using the fruit of his labor to earn God's favor blew up in his face. From the actions of the first family, flow the fountainhead of all religious thought. God's effectual covering versus my attempts at covering. Blood offering versus my sacrifices. Religious works versus a relationship with a savior like Abel. From these two chapters, God goes on the record. There is only one accepted way a sinful man may approach a righteous God. Only one way we can be covered by placing our faith in an atoning sacrifice given by God for humanity. It's, it's not that there is only one way. What's amazing and where we see God's grace is the fact that there is a way at all. People want many ways. Say, oh, one way, that's closed-minded. One way is God's grace because we deserve no way because of our sin. Sadly, not only do man's best attempts at concealing his sinful state before God through good deeds flop, and his most valiant efforts at self-atoning for sin fall very short. In essence, religion fails to both save and it's really good at condemning. But the danger is that such pursuits are counterproductive because they alienate a person from the very God who came seeking to save. Cain's big problem was Cain. With this in mind, in Mark chapter 11, we're given a very strange account of something that takes place during Jesus' week of passion. 
Jesus has arrived at Jerusalem. He's going to die for the sins of the world. He's going to be the ultimate sacrifice. As John declared, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He came to be the sacrifice. And as he's making his way from Bethany to Jerusalem, every morning, every evening, we're told something interesting happens. We're told that seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, Jesus went to see if perhaps he would find something on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not season for figs. So in response to it, Jesus said, let no one eat from you ever again. He cursed the tree. And his disciples were told, heard it, so that in the morning as they pass by, they see that the fig tree has dried up from the roots. So Peter, remembering, said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed is withered away. So Jesus answered and said to them, have faith in God. You know, that's radical to me. Because who was in the garden when Adam and Eve came out behind those trees wearing fig leaves? It was Jesus. These terrible coverings, man's best attempt. Who was there to accept or reject the sacrifice of Cain? To accept Abel? It was Jesus the fruit of man's labor, that man could come and give God anything. And Jesus, going to die for the sins of the world, sees a fig tree, and he walks up, and he's like, you tree, not only do you not produce fruit, but you've never covered a soul. Cursed be the fig tree. And then Jesus went to Calvary and died for the sins of the world because he would be a covering that would be effectual. It's a weird moment to curse a tree unless you realize that the first mention of figs go all the way back to where? To Adam and Eve. Religion fails, <laughs> but Jesus saves.